Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Dr. Ari Barbalat with the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm honored today to present my guest, Dr. Menachem Kellner, Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Jewish Thought at Shalem College in Jerusalem and Professor Emeritus of Jewish Thought at the University of Haifa. We are here today to discuss his new book, We Are, we Are Not Alone, a Maimonidean Theology of the Other, published by Academic Studies Press 2021. Menachem, it's an honor to be in your presence today. <laughs> that really sounds exaggerated to me, but I'm very grateful for having me on this uh, podcast. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Can you tell us about yourself? How did you become inspired to invest your career in Jewish thought and philosophy? Sure. Um, I'm 75 years old, born and raised in the United States, in the home of of an Orthodox rabbi who himself came to America after World War I as a uh, teenager. Uh, Many immigrants of his day became extremely extreme patriot, American patriot, and a great Zionist at the same time. So I was raised in that kind of home, uh, in many different communities, as my father, my father used to say that rabbis and football coaches move around a lot. So we moved from community to community, but in all of them, he uh, either created a Jewish school for his kids, or we found one going. Uh, but I was very much raised I guess I can explain in the following fashion. When I was growing up, there were things that we never did. We weren't allowed to do. We, didn't, we never even considered them as something that could be done. We never violated the Sabbath, never didn't keep kosher, never put a Republican. They were all the same thing for us. We didn't realize that you could be a Jew and vote for, vote for the Republican Party. That has changed. But this is a kind of an indication of the world in which, uh, in which I grew up. Uh, I spent some time in various yeshivot in the United States and in Israel, and uh, in 1962 began my academic studies at Washington University in St. Louis, where we lived. And there I came under the influence of a man named Stephen Schwarzschild, uh, who, I would say after my father, is the second greatest influence on my life. Uh, the third greatest influence has been my wife. So the three of them I see as the people who created me for what I am. Uh, my father helped me become a committed Jew and a Zionist. And uh, excuse me, I'm going to close something down here and stop making noises. Sorry about that. We, we can edit it out. Okay, fine. Here I am back again. Sorry. Uh, and Stephen introduced me, Stephen Schwarzschild introduced me to philosophy, to uh, what came to be called uh, 
in my eyes, Jewish universalism, the idea that uh, Jews should take seriously the biblical teaching that all human beings are created in the image of God, which is certainly something I picked up at home as well, but given Schwarzschild gave me that, uh, you might say, theological back, backing to that, uh, that idea. Uh, I started college in 1962 at Washington University in St. Louis, as I said, and wanted to study philosophy. I was just attracted to it. I actually had planned uh, to study American history. My father had been an ABT at Columbia in American history. World War II and a family intervened, so he ended up being a rabbi and educator. Uh, and I wanted to continue in his uh, footsteps, but I was intrigued by the courses of philosophy that I took, especially with uh, Stephen Schwarzschild, and uh, began a career of studying philosophy. Uh, I was a, uh, a product of the 60s. Uh, my PhD, which I earned in 1963, was on the subject of uh, civil disobedience and democracy, a philosophical justification. Mm. Now, I had spent time as a, both as an undergraduate and a graduate student at the University of Jerusalem, overseas programs, which didn't exist back then, but which I sort of created for myself. And, and in Jerusalem, I took only courses in, in Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy. But when I came back and finished my PhD, I expected to um, look for a job as a professor of philosophy. Uh, at that time, there were no jobs in philosophy, but Jewish studies was just taking off. And so I found if I could pretend to be an expert in Jewish studies, I could get jobs. Wow. And that's more or less what happened. <laughs> I never looked back. It, it turned out that that's really... That's what I wanted to do. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I realized that um, it's certainly the way in which I'm glad things worked out. Uh, so I spent my whole career, I published one article 40 odd years ago from my dissertation. Since then, everything has been in the field of Jewish philosophy or contemporary Jewish thought. I never looked back. Until I joined Shalane College, they needed someone who could be a chair of both the philosophy and the Jewish law program. Because of my background, I was perfect for that. So that in brief is the uh, is a kind of my autobiographical statement. I could, of course, go on for hours, but I don't think your, your, your listeners, are we talking to listeners or to people who see this? Uh, listeners. Listeners, okay. I'm sure your listeners don't want to, uh, I mean, I didn't have to get dressed nicely for this. You didn't have to get dressed nicely. I'm going to tell my wife about that in any event. Uh, I can go on. I'm sure that's more than they want to know. Thank you. How did you become inspired by the topic that evolved into this book? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I guess the bottom line is that I grew up in an orthodox slash politically liberal household, and it stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I moved to Israel, I was actually, I came here, moved here in 1980 to take a job at the University of Haifa teaching medieval Jewish philosophy. Uh, in the uh, close to 20 years between, whatever, no, I finished my PhD in 73. In the 13 years between, I turned myself into someone who could pretend to be an expert in medieval Jewish thought. Uh, and I was working on a figure named Gersonides, Levi Ben Gershom. Yes. Eight to 1344. Uh, but, uh, and then also I started working on the whole subject of dogma and medieval Jewish thought. 
story of mine. That, of course, is a story of mine, everything. And uh, published a book uh, by Abravanel, Isaac, Isaac Abravanel, on the mm. subject, and realized that in order to write a proper introduction to that book, I have to write a history of dogma. And then that eventuated in a book on dogma, but uh, the biggest chapter there is about Maimonides. And that's when I began really paying close attention to Maimonides, as well as the fact that if you were a an Israeli with an identification with traditional Judaism, and you are, you're politically liberal or then the, the figure who most appeals to you is Maimonides. Um, it was an interesting phenomenon that when I moved to Israel in 1980, I was part of a whole wave of North Americans who came to Israel, most of whom came to teach medieval, in my group, to teach medieval Jewish philosophy, and almost all of whom were like me, i.e. Uh, traditionally observant Jews who were politically centrist or liberal. Mm-hmm. Almost without exception. I don't know how that happened, uh, but I was not alone in, in being like that. And of course, my cohort is now like me, retired from universities, but remained more or less the same. Uh, of course, there's been lots and lots of changes here in Israel over the last, we've lived here now for 41 years, and um, things have caused lots of changes. <laughs> Well, my colleagues and I are pretty, and all of us, have a tremendous interest in Maimonides because if you're interested in Jewish topics uh, and you want to uh, study someone who makes a difference today, not just in historical terms, then Maimonides is your guy. In light of what you've just mentioned, um, I'd be curious to ask you, you titled your book A Maimonidean theology of the other. Why did you choose a Maimonidean theology of the other in contrast to a Levinasian or Buberian philosophy of the other in light of how much Martin Buber and Emmanuel Levinas have written on the topic of the other? Why a Maimonidean philosophy of the other rather than a Kabbalistic philosophy of the other, or a Talmudic, or a biblical? You've asked a lot of questions, and let me first answer the one you didn't ask. Sure. And then I'll answer the other ones you did ask. Sure. Maimonidean, as I make clear in the book, I hope I make clear in the book, as opposed to the view of Maimonides on, because I'm Mm -hmm. trying to use Maimonides as a source and trying to develop ideas of his in ways that make sense in the contemporary, our contemporary world. I do not pretend for a moment that the historical figure named Maimonides, born in 1138 and died in 1204, would agree with most of what I say in the book. I would like to think that he might, but I don't pretend that that's the case. However, uh, I do think that I have the right to appeal to him in ways which he might or might not have agreed to, but at least it gives me a certain, you might say, measure of traditional cover. If I can show that the views I'm promoting are views which can be found in or derived from uh, the writings of Maimonides, that gives me, you might say, a seal of approval in the traditional Jewish world. That wasn't the the question you asked. Now, the question you asked, one by one, 
Well, first of all, Maimonides, as opposed to all the people you mentioned, uh, with the exception of Kabbalah, uh, is much more influential in Jewish terms, much more authoritative. It's fair to say that um, if I can show you that Maimonides held a position, you have to admit that that position is, shall we say, Jewishly legitimate. Yes. That's why uh, everybody has to have Maimonides in his or her camp. Yes. You can't be a Jew within the traditional world and say, well, Maimonides says X, and that's wrong. Mm. I mean, I do say that, but uh, that's because I read a lot of chutzpah. Uh, but uh, if I can show you that Maimonides says X, then that means I can rely upon X to, to develop my thinking or help you develop your thinking. Uh, there is no, you can't say that, certainly not of Buber, certainly not of the Minas, uh, any of the other, uh, you mentioned uh, Kabbalah, I forget the other things you mentioned, none of them have that level of authority. Uh, Kabbalah is different because its influence is humongous, huge in today's world, in today's Jewish world, in ways that many people don't even realize. Uh, but getting back to your question, Martin Buber doesn't have anywhere near the authority Jews today. In fact, even when he was alive, he was much more important in Protestant circles than in Jewish circles. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Levinas simply doesn't doesn't speak to me. Yes. I grew up in a philosophical world where if you want to say something, try and say it clearly. Yes. And as much as I admire Levinas the man, and as much as I'm friendly with Levinasians, including colleagues at, at Chalet, uh, I simply cannot make heads nor tail of what he wants me to say. Understood. I'm not proud of the fact that I don't understand him, but I don't want to pretend that I understand him and disagree with him. I haven't reached that level where I can disagree with him. Right. How do you come to terms with aspects of Maimonides' own writings that would be considered problematic or even immoral today. For example, at the end of The God of the Perplexed, in his Parable of the Palace, he writes as follows in Book 3, Chapter 51. The people who are abroad are all those that have no religion, neither one based on speculation or one received by tradition, such are the extreme Turks that wander about in the north, the Kushites who live in the south, and those in our country who are like these. I consider these as irrational beings, not as human beings. They are below mankind, but above monkeys, since they have the form and shape of a man and a mental faculty above that of the monkey. How do we reconcile the aspects of Maimonides that you draw upon in your book other things that Maimonides sells elsewhere that are that one would struggle with in light of the progress in ethics that we would take for granted today. Let's hope we take it for granted today. Let's hope. Okay? I'm not sure that that uh, that, that statement uh, stands up to a uh, careful examination, but I hope you're right. Uh, okay, first of all. That goes back to my claiming the book is a Maimonidean and not a statement of Maimonides' positions. Yes. Point one. Point two. Many years ago, 
my wife was angry with me for positions held by Maimonides, so much so that to save, so that we could have peace in the house, I lit, put up a list of his mistakes on the refrigerator in the kitchen. Okay. So she would blame him and not me. Uh, among the, the first of those mistakes was his intellectual elitism. Yes. Now, one cannot blame Maimonides for being an intellectual elitist. You have to blame Aristotle. Mm. Maimonides followed Aristotle explicitly in teaching that the definition of human being is a rational animal. A person born of human parents who does not develop her rational abilities is less human than someone who does. Mm. Now, I find that uh, shall we say, obnoxious in the extreme, but it's certainly not a few I'm willing to defend. Uh, and I have no problem with saying that Maimonides was wrong. And I would also like to think that perhaps were he alive today, he would realize that he was wrong about that, but I cannot guarantee that at all. So you know, 800 years have passed, and a lot of water has flowed down the Jordan or the Mississippi. Um, so I don't know what, he, I can't really talk about what he would say today, but he certainly said that back then. Uh, a function of his um, intellectual elitism, uh, I would say a function of his Aristotelianism, is the idea that the Jewish religion is based upon a series of dogmas, which create the basis for what is called orthodoxy today. Now, I wrote a whole book against that. Most of the Jew believe anything. I think that Maimonides introduced into Judaism, he changed the face of the Jewish religion by... Uh, basically creating Judaism into what you might call a synagogue of true believers. And I think that's that has a negative effect on Judaism today and uh, is something to be resisted. Uh, now, his getting back to your specific question, his problem with uh, what he calls the extreme, following the, the Greek notion of uh, the median uh, so-called theory of climbs, according to which the what we would call the equator is the most perfect part of the Earth. If you're born and raised far away from the equator in the north or far away from the equator in the south, you are less human than those who are actually raised right in the best part of the world. Uh, and that's a function of, uh, of what he considered to be science in his day. So when he was talking about that, he was talking about science that everybody in his world Jews, Christians, and Muslims had no problem with that. That was standard science. Yes. If we could show him that that science was wrong and that there is no influence upon your human abilities if you're born way up in Scandinavia or way down south in, uh, in Africa, uh, he would have to admit that that was wrong. I don't, see, I don't think you have a problem admitting that. Uh, there are other things that but Maimonides was born in 1138 and died in 1204, in a specific historical context, in a specific Jewish legal context, we can't expect him to have all the views that we like. Yes. And, and he doesn't. He takes the opportunity to have many views which we don't like. And I do not pretend for a moment that that's not the case. Yes, it is definitely the case. But... <laughs> I think the reason why he's important, aside from the fact he's got this authoritative standing, is he doesn't want us to be blind followers of his positions. He wants us to, I think, take him as a model. 
A model of one is a person who thinks that human beings ought to use their brains. And uh, as a model who understands that God really did create human beings in the image of God. As a model of a person who thinks that, um, that Torah includes everything that's true. Man who I like to think of as the greatest Maimonidean of the 20th century was a uh, Yemenite-born rabbi named Yosef Kafach, or Joseph Kafach, who uh, translated many of Maimonides' writings from Arabic into Hebrew. He was once asked, what does Maimonides say about secular subjects? And Rabbi Kafach said, he says nothing about it, because there is no such thing. If, it's true, if a science teaches truth, it's not secular. And if something teaches falsehood, it's not Jewish. Well, that, I thought, was a very Maimonidean statement. Um, you alluded to Yosef Kafich, who appears in your book. And you also have another quote uh, in your book um, by the commentator on the guide, Shemtov Ibn Shemtov, right. where he presents the idea that Maimonides could not have written the parable on the palace. Which commentators on the guide have informed your interpretation of the guide, which contemporary interpreters of Maimonides and pre-modern interpreters of Maimonides would you consider most helpful in formulating a worldview underpinning the ideas in your book? Right. Uh, it's a hard question. First of all, Shem Tov isn't saying that Maimonides didn't write the 51st chapter of the third mm. part of the guide. He's saying other people those yes made that uh, made that claim he would he certainly knew very well that, that Maimonides had written that chapter and he had no problem with that um it's very hard for me to answer that question uh i was i guess you could say more influenced by Maimonidean judaism as i see it before i learned these various commentators from the middle ages mm. so yeah, I can't say that any that or Narboni or Bravanel or any of those people actually helped me help me to understand uh, Maimonides. Uh, I would have to say that uh, in, in the latter half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, the person who most influenced my reading of Maimonides was a man whose reading I reject. And that very rejection, I think, helped me to formulate my own interpretation of Maimonides. And that man was Leo Streps, <laughs> a great political thinker, a great uh, historian of political thought, a great interpreter of Maimonides, and wrong. <laughs> I may expatiate on, my, on that for a moment. Uh, there are lots of different ways of reading, this, especially Maimonides of the Guide. So you can think of it in terms of a, a kind of broad group of possibilities. On the far end at the right, you might say, are uh, orthodox interpreters of Maimonides who basically say he was just a Yiddish-speaking yeshiva head who pretended to be a philosopher. Yes. I'm exaggerating, but you will hear that view a lot. Um, my Canadian colleague and dear friend, James Simon, and I published a book of essays called Reinventing Maimonides in the Contemporary World, where we took a whole bunch of individuals and showed how each one of them reread Maimonides so, as, so that Maimonides had to agree with that person. Yes. 
because nobody can simply say he was wrong. Uh, nobody can say that my Judaism is anti-Maimonides, and therefore Maimonides has to agree with me. So on the far right, you have that perspective that Rambam was just plain garden variety orthodox yeshiva. On the far left, you have the perspective of people like Leo Strauss, who taught that Maimonides was actually a straightforward, you might say orthodox Aristotelian who pretended to be a rabbi. Yes. And that view was started early in the Middle Ages. A uh, very famous halachist uh, of the Yitzchak Bar Sheshit Perfet, known as Rivash. Basically, in the 50, early 15th century, basically said that Maimonides wrote what he wrote in order to, uh, so to speak, give a life raft to Jews who were drowning in a sea of debt. He really didn't, he wasn't really interested in philosophy, but there were a lot of Jews around him who were. And therefore, Maimonides wrote these works so as to give them kind of life raft or uh, uh, something like that, a life vest so they could remain Jewish, remain remain observant. But that this is not, not really what Maimonides was interested in doing. Now, my view, which is, of course, the correct one, is that Maimonides... Uh, lives at the intersection of what you might call two vectors. One vector begins at, uh, shall we say, with Plato, continues through the entire history of Western philosophy. Who's your favorite philosopher today, Ari? I would have to say Emmanuel Levinas. Okay, fine. You're allowed. So there's a vector that starts from Plato through the history of Western philosophy to Levinas. Mm. And there's another vector that starts with Moses, he used to the entire history of the Jewish tradition and ends up with, who's your favorite Jewish thinker today? Jonathan, Jonathan I, Sachs, I, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Always Sachs, okay. My, my interpretation of Maimonides has been from the very beginning. He lived in both of those places. He lived at the intersection of these two worlds. Yes. And took them both seriously, which is why he's so important to us. Because we live in an intersection of those two worlds. I want to expand to that point, if I may. He's important to us because he lived in his modernity. Mm-hmm. He did not live next to it. Yes. You and I know lots of Jewish people with whom we socialize, shall we say, in the synagogues we go to, mm-hmm. live next to modernity. Yes. I mean, they use it. They know they have telephones and internet and WhatsApp and Zoom, whatever. But they're totally uninterested in the, you might say, the values that under underlay the technology they use. Yes. Uh, that, And even if they go on and become physicians or lawyers, or what we used to call Jewish engineers, accountants, it's a technical thing. It's a skill that they get in order to be able to earn a living and be comfortable. But they don't take the modern world and its challenges as something that they as Jews have to respond to. Mm-hmm. You have a PhD uh, from the University of California, Los Angeles. You and I live in a world in which we have to take seriously the challenges of going back to Kant, uh, Marx, Freud, more recent people, 
Uh, they create the modern world in which we actually live. Yes. Rambam, Maimonides, excuse me, lived in his modern world and took it seriously and thought that as a Jew, he was, uh, he had to do his best to make it possible for other Jews to live in that modernity and not right next to it. Many of the people who criticized him in his lifetime and afterwards may have been very modern in their own eyes, but they were not living in the same modernity he lived in. And that's his importance for us today as a model of a person who says you can be Jewish, you should be Jewish for him. As my wife likes to remind me, she says, every time I start teaching, she says, remember to tell them he was also a rabbi, not just a philosopher. Yes. But he was both. And uh, as someone who was, quote, also a rabbi, uh, he was not only a rabbi. He was a rabbi who thought that as a rabbi, he had to live in the real world, the real intellectual world, the real cultural world, the real social world, uh, and do his best to make it possible for other Jews who took their Judaism seriously, but also didn't, weren't willing to pretend that they weren't living in the world around them to, do, to live in successfully in, the, in these two worlds. At the intersection of the two vectors I was talking about, I can shut up now. In your perspective, this book being published in 2021, what are your thoughts on the Israeli government, the new Israeli government? And oh. I, I don't mean to make the question political, but in light of the vision of an open-minded orthodoxy and an open-minded approach to Judaism, what might your book say to the, the kind of coalition that Prime Minister Bennett is overseeing? Um, there are present controversies in Israel regarding the reform of Kashrut, regarding conversion, regarding topics and themes that show up in your book. Is there any insights that your book can offer to the contemporary political moment in Israel? Whoa. <laughs> Trying to get me into trouble? Um, I'm only kidding. I, I'm, I'm actually curious what you genuinely think. Okay. Uh, it's hard for me to answer. I want to try to avoid sure. the, the direct politics of the sure. issue. But look, anybody who reads my book will come away knowing that Menachem Kellner is a uh, political and social liberal, uh, personally observant Jew, active in his synagogue and his community, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly uh, politically and socially uh, liberal, uh, who is in favor of any Israeli government which will enhance the kinds of values that he, Menachem Kellner, uh, holds dear. Uh, thus, I'm I very happy with many things the current government has done. Again, I'm not going to talk about the issues of the land of Israel and peace with the Palestinians. Uh, it's way beyond, way above my pay grade to see sure. conversation. Uh, but uh, I, I think we should, and here I'm not speaking for Maimonides at all. Uh, I'm a, very much a Jewish nationalist. I mean, I moved to Israel because of that and spent a fair amount of my time trying to defend Israel on the internet because of that and because I think we're worthy of, the, of defending. Uh, 
But I certainly don't think that people who observe a kind of Judaism in the mind are in any sense less Jewish than I am. Yes. Therefore, I am strongly supportive of those developments in the, uh, in the Israeli government, which make it more likely that we can welcome seriously and sincerely uh, non-Orthodox Jews. Yes. And I think uh, we've made many, many mistakes over the years in, in, that, uh, in that area. And I'm optimistic that perhaps, given the current constellation without the Haredi parties in the, in the government, we can make a certain amount of progress in that direction. Uh, similarly, I think we've made tremendous mistakes on the issue of conversion by handing it over to the most, how can I put this politely, the least liberal <laughs> elements yes. within, uh, within orthodoxy. Uh, we've enabled them to take it over. Uh, and like in many issues in the Jewish world, there are a lot more views than the ones you think are the only ones available. Yes. And so, again, without I'm not a rabbi. I can't say I'm not the son of a rabbi. I can't say I'm not the brother of a rabbi. I'm certainly the son and brother of a rabbi and the uncle of a million rabbis. <laughs> I'm not a rabbi. Uh, so I can't pretend to be talking in terms of Jewish law, but just in terms of Jewish history, uh, we all know that over, this, over the centuries, people have become absorbed into the Jewish people without being descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I was born, I was blonde with green eyes. I'm not sure that came from ancient Judea. Uh -huh. uh, I've since lost the blonde hair, lost the hair altogether, basically. Yes. But um, uh, I don't pretend that we're all actually descended from the patriarchs. Uh, and I think that, as uh, Blue Greenberg once said, and she, she's a very famous Orthodox feminist. Uh, uh -huh. She said... Um, where there's a rabbinic will, there's an halachic way. Yes. Or as my late mother used to say, if rabbis were women, Judaism would look differently. Yes. Uh, and that's another aspect, by the way, where Maimonides is, uh, is not a model for me. He was very much not a feminist on, you might say, halachic or social terms. Yes. He was very much a feminist in the sense that he held that women are actually created in the image of God, which mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages was not a standard view. He was a philosophical egalitarian and halachic. What's the opposite of egalitarian? Chauvinist, I don't know what to say. Uh -huh. uh, but these are, another, these are other aspects of his thought, which uh, I do not try to adopt or use. Much of what I say in the book follows from the fact that Maimonides really thought that human beings are human beings. Uh, he would have, I think, um, been happy to... Uh, to accept what the late Martin Luther King Jr. said, that people should be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Even as a medieval Jew, he was judging people by the color of their skin, but that's because he had incorrect science. Uh -huh. Yes. Did I answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Um, you, you, you write elsewhere in your book the following. Admitting that human beings need specific communities, why ought one of them be Jewish? Why not assimilate, as so many Jews in the West are doing with great success? At the very least, wholesale assimilation would solve the quote-unquote Jewish problem and rid the world of anti-Semitism. Would it be so horrible if an ancient historian 
centuries hence after Herodotus would devote a career to unearthing the crumbling remains of a culture called Judaism. Does anyone today lose sleep over the disappearance of the Phrygians, their language and culture? How does your book and your reading of Maimonides speak to this question of assimilation and the decline of Judaism? In light of Maimonides and the insights presented in your book, why should a culture called Judaism still exist? Let me strengthen your question mm-hmm. by quoting uh, something I bring up in the book more than once. I once heard the late Emil Fackenheim, great uh, Canadian Jewish uh, thinker, who made a scary, frightening point. Fackenheim said that uh, people were killed in the Holocaust because their grandparents refused to convert to Christianity. That means if someone today decides to remain Jewish, they could be condemning their grandchildren grandchildren to death. In other words, the decision to remain Jewish is a decision uh, of moral significance. It should not be just a matter of convenience or laziness or sentiment. There should be some reason behind it. I think that that strengthens your question. People should... If they don't think there's anything valuable in Judaism, then perhaps they should assimilate because who knows what's going to happen to their descendants a couple of generations hence. Now to answer your question. Yes. First of all, on personal levels, as you know, as Jessica Rabbit said, I was just drawn that way. Yes. Given the way I was raised and given the way I raised myself, given the way my wife raised me and my teachers. Uh, I am, as I said before, a Jewish nationalist. It's important to me individually. Yes. For me, there's there's no question here. However, since I also believe that, uh, I don't want to sound, I believe that in a real sense, Judaism is true. Mm -hmm. Perhaps in uh, people who are much more strictly observant or Haredi than I am would say that my sense of Judaism being true is attenuated or not very impressive. But I'm not willing to give up the idea that in some serious sense, the Torah teaches truth. Yes. Uh, If I believe that, then I certainly believe that uh, we have something worth preserving. Uh, it's not just a matter of the fact that the human mosaic would be impoverished if it wasn't, weren't Jews. I think that Jews have an important role, uh, important contribution to make, still in very much so now. And as I write a couple of times in the book, and here I basically learned this from my colleague in Chicago, Kenneth Siskin, uh, the whole message of Jewish messianism is that there is room for hope. Uh-huh. We have, and not only is there room for hope, but we are also obliged to try and make that hope actual. And this I learned from my teacher, Stephen Forschild. This was an important point he go over time and time again. If we don't strive for ideals, we will, by nature, turn the ideal into the real. In other words, let what's going on around us determine what ought to be. But if we don't have an ideal to strive for, and the messianic ideal as described, certainly in Maimonides and in other Jewish texts is an ideal that I think is worth striving for, 
then we're condemned to, to, to allow what goes on around us to be the ideal. Uh, we will turn the real into the ideal as opposed to having the ideal help us to, to improve the real. So I think that the messianic dream of Judaism is important for the whole world. Not in specific terms, but the idea that we, A, we have something, we have reason to hope for a better future. And if we have reason to hope for a better future, we have an obligation, a moral and religious obligation to work towards that better future. And I think that's what a very important message of Maimonides. And it's certainly an important message for me. In your seventh chapter, you devote attention to Maimonides' perspective on Christianity. Um, you write, in his terms, Maimonides had many reasons for condemning Christianity as avodazara. However, as argued in this chapter, this comes at great expense. Consistent halachic Maimonideans who condemn Christianity as avodazara should condemn as avodazara much of the Judaism which they and their neighbors practice. Would Christianity have been evaluated differently if there were no persecution by Christians of Jews? Why can't pre-modern theological opposition to Christianity be annulled? Why must Maimonides' position on Christianity be held to today? Would it what would be the problem for orthodoxy to simply learn from conservative and reformed Judaism's attitudes towards Christianity in light of the contemporary progress in Jewish-Christian relations and Israel's reliance on Christian nations' support to exist in the first place? You know, people listening to this podcast are going to come away from the impression that Menachem Kellner is constantly rejecting views held by Maimonides. Mm. So just, just to be clear, Maimonides thought that Christianity was idolatry. Yes. Achim Kellner rejects that. Yes. Okay. okay. Now, who's to blame here? I think to blame here again is Aristotle. I'm blaming him for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maimonides was convinced on the basis of what he thought he could prove on the, in an Aristotelian fashion that God, to exist had to be one and incorporeal. And beyond that, he also thought that a God which was one and incorporeal had no emotions. Uh, now, the Christian God is clearly a corporeal God. You can't get away from that. So... There is no way he could have thought that Christianity was not idolatrous. Idolatrous in the sense of, uh, it's not so much a matter of uh, crucifixes and statues of Jesus, but the idea that God is not one and incorporeal, but something else. So that uh, that's certainly his view. And it's my mind, he's wrong. My argument in the chapter was a polemical argument. Okay. You want to condemn Christianity as idolatry. I want to emphasize parenthetically that a lot of Orthodox rabbis do not condemn Christianity as idolatry. Many more do. But those who do, almost all of them do so on the basis of texts taken from Maimonides. And my argument in the chapter is, well, in that case, guys, be consistent. Condemn yourselves as idolaters. 
because you, your God is certainly not Maimonides' God. Uh, since so many Jews today buy into Jew, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, uh, a contemporary version of Jewish mysticism, not all Jewish mystics uh, believe in a corporeal God, but uh, not, it's hard to find a Jewish mystic or Kabbalist, I should say, who doesn't take seriously the notion of the Sefirot, the aspects of the divine, which Maimonides would certainly condemn as, uh, as destroying God's incorporeality and unity, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, you know, seems to me you want to be consistent. Okay, you want to condemn Christianity? Well, it comes with a price. Condemn yourselves. So it's yes. a, purely a, polemical, a purely a polemical argument. Now, I want to advert to something you said. I often ask people, why is it that Jews get very upset by Jews for Jesus and don't get upset by Jews, Jewish Buddhists? Mm -hmm. Yes. And this reverts back to something you said. I think that, uh, ask yourself, how many Jews have been killed in the name of Buddhism over the last 2,000 years? Right. Say zero. Zero. So clearly, the painful history of the last 2,000 years uh, strongly influences our view of, of Christianity. However, to allow that to determine how we live from now on is basically to say that the world hasn't changed. We haven't learned, we and our Christian friends and neighbors have not learned anything new. It's to say, uh, in the words of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that uh, Esav, i.e., in terms of traditional Jewish uh, mythology, Christianity, by nature hates Jacob, hates Israel, which is nonsense, but that's a very standard view. Uh, I remember once I invited to the University of Haifa, the then, uh, the, already, the, the uh, retired chief rabbi of uh, by Rene Sirah. Yes. There's a great joke about him, by the way. Rene Sirah is Algerian. At the same time that he was chief rabbi first of Paris, before he became chief rabbi of France, uh, Lustiger was archbishop of, and then cardinal of Paris. Lustiger was a Jew by birth who became a Catholic during the, the Holocaust. So people were saying that for the first time, France had a Sephardi chief rabbi and an Ashkenazi cardinal. Not sure how many of your listeners will appreciate that joke, but it was uh -huh. anyway. Yes, I was talking to Rabbi Rene Sirah, uh, who was complaining that uh, at Vatican II, the Catholic Church had made tremendous steps towards trying to repair its very, shall we say, unfortunate history towards the Jews. But he knew of no Jews who were willing to reciprocate. Yes, and. Um, he was upset about that. I think he was right to be upset about it. Uh, and I think that we have to take a certain amount of responsibility also. If the, someone is, is extending to us a hand, uh, shall we say, fellowship and uh, collegiality, we should extend our hand back. I'm not getting here into politics, evangelicals, like that, but I certainly think that... Uh, not realizing that the Christian world today 
is not the same as the Christian world of a thousand years ago is foolish, unfortunate, counterproductive, etc. In in your answer, you alluded to Buddhism, and as shows up in your book, you have a passage where you present the irony that in today's North America, Buddhism is a greater challenge to Judaism than Christianity. Right. In The God of the Perplexed, Maimonides intervenes in the medieval philosophical debates between the Mu'tazala and the Mutakalimun. If Maimonides had been aware of Buddha and Buddhism, can we speculate what he may have thought of them, of Buddhism, in light of his philosophical debates? Would he have seen the fatalism of Buddhism in a similar lens of the fate of what he critiques in the fatalism of Kalam? Would he have appreciated Buddha the way he appreciated Aristotle and Plato? If Maimonides knew of Buddhism, where might Buddhism have fit in the philosophical theological debate Maimonides is presenting in The God of the Perplexed? It's hard for me to answer because uh, I don't know much about Buddhism. Mm. Uh, but that will never stop a professor from answering a question, right? Sure. Um, so far as I know, Buddhism is by and large not a theistic religion. There is no personal God or even impersonal God. So that would not appeal to Maimonides at all. Uh, he certainly would not agree, I think, with fatalism. Uh, like his predecessor, Sajid Aon, did not think that transmigration, Yilgul, going from life to life, made any sense. Uh, he saw these as views which came actually from the world uh, from India. By the way, people in Maimonides' day were aware of Indian religions. Uh, Sajida Own talks about them at some length in his book, Emanuel Pideot. Uh, Halevi was aware of them. It's not as if they were totally unaware of what was going on in the uh, so-called Indian subcontinent. Mm. But I really can't answer your question. I don't know what he would say today about it. Um, and it was not an issue that ever came up in his life. He was aware of them on a theoretical path. Passion, but I don't think he could have dreamt of ever meeting a Buddhist. Right. Um, in your third chapter, chapter three, you present the ideas of Mordechai Kaplan, Isaac Deutscher, and George Steiner to elucidate your argument on the theme of election in Maimonides. Can you share for us what role Mordechai Kaplan, Isaac Deutscher, and George George Steiner play in helping you formulate your, the perspective presented on election in Maimonides' writing. You realize, Ari, if I do that, it's being counterproductive. Nobody will run out and buy the book. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm only, I'm only kidding. Oh, sorry. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Look, there's a chapter about the notion of the chosen people. And the reason I cite uh, Kaplan, uh, Steiner, and, uh, and uh, Deutscher. <laughs> yeah, is because these are three people who are basically uh, atheists in any sense that uh, 
the theists would recognize. And yet each one of them could not get away from some sense of the nation of the chosen people. Yes. I use, them, I use them in order to show how important that view is in Judaism. If Mordechai Kaplan, whose idea of God is like Obi-Wan Kenobi's force from the original uh, Star Wars movie, for those of your listeners who are sophisticated, uh, Isaac Deutscher, who was a, an atheist, uh, communist, or at least socialist, I should say, uh, and for George Steiner, who's... Uh, Identity as a Jew is important to him, but not important enough, you might say. Each one of them, in their, each in his, in his way, basically affirmed the notion of Jewish chosenness without there being a God to Jews. So I was citing them as uh, to show how important the view is within the Jewish tradition. Uh, even three people like that could not get, could not get away from it. Uh, so therefore helps me to explain why that view remains salient in uh, discussions of Judaism to this day. And my, uh, my point, my attempt in the chapter in particular, the book in general, is to get away from, uh, you might say, chauvinist views of chosenness, uh, to see it more in terms of a challenge as a, than as a terms as a present. In general, Maimonides did not really believe in God giving out presents on a silver platter. God gave out, you might say, challenges. Jobs. Yes. And the notion of chosenness is meant to challenge Jews, not to give them something to pat themselves on the back about. And it's certainly not meant to teach, as is so often held to be the case nowadays in so many circles, that it means that Jews are in some ontological or metaphysical or moral sense different from and superior to non-Jews. Maimonides took seriously the idea that human beings are created in the image of God and that there is no advantage in human terms to Jews over non-Jews. There's plenty of advantages to Judaism, he thought, but uh, his Judaism was such that it wasn't restricted, you might say, to Jews. In your perspective, what social trends and intellectual debates do you foresee influencing the ways that Maimonides and the guide will be interpreted in the 21st century? You have a passage on page 162 where you say, I'm not sure how much further than Maimonides I can actually see, but I do have the advantage of perhaps living in a world dramatically different from his, as such I am faced by many perplexities that he could not have first seen. Faced with these perplexities, I would affirm that true Judaism is fundamentally universalist and condemn as deviant the many examples of particularism we have seen throughout this book. What, in your perspective, does the future hold for the reinterpretation of Maimonides and the guide? I suppose you know that the rabbis tell us that since the destruction of the uh, first temple, uh, prophecy no longer exists and is vouchsafed only to fools and uh, so TV, yeah, fools and lunatics. Yes. So, yes, I'm familiar. We'll tell you I'm neither a fool nor a lunatic, I hope. So mm -hmm. not much prophesy. Instead, instead of answering your question, I'll revert back to something I said before. Maimonides is in many ways the greatest rabbi who ever lived. Mm -hmm. Uh 
in the sense of what we, the way we use the term rabbi. Maimonides is one of the few individuals who in the entire history of Judaism, whose impact is such that had he not lived, Judaism today would look very different. Uh-huh. And it does. Um, and Maimonides was, as my wife reminds me to tell the students, he was also a rabbi, not just yes. a philosopher. So Maimonides can serve, and I, I made this point before, as a model for us going in the future. I don't know what the future will bring. But to the extent that I want the future to have a Judaism, which is in some recognizable sense, clearly and seriously related to the Jewish past, then uh, Maimonides is an individual who enables me to do that, who enables me to look with Look at the world around me. Straight, they say in Hebrew, eye level. Yes. I can see what I'm looking at. And look at that with the eyes of a Jew, the person who believes that Judaism is something to teach and something worthwhile to teach, but who isn't blind to what's going on around him or her. And I take Maimonides as the person who helps us to do that, who provides us also with a sort of a authority to do it. Uh, again, no one is going to take Maimonides seriously in terms of what he himself, he was an Aristotelian. His mm-hmm. physics is outmoded. Yes. His, his proofs of the existence of God make no sense in our world. He was, he, the third time I'll say, he was born in 1138 and died in 1204 in a different world altogether. Uh, so anyone who I very rarely will say, Ari, that if Maimonides were alive today, he would say X, Y, or Z. One thing I'm sure of, if he were alive today, he would tell people, you're sick, go to a real medical doctor, don't read my books. Yes. He was a physician. He was a very important physician in his day, highly regarded in the Muslim world around him. But he would be the first person to tell you medicine has progressed. Yes. Do not inject yourself with bleach. Yes. I'm sure he would say that. Yes. As we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on now and next as your subsequent project? Okay. I'll tell you about one thing I'm working on right now. Uh, There is a marvelous website called thetorah.com. Okay. The Torah, one word, dot com. And every week they put out relatively short discussions of the weekly reading, Torah reading. Uh, I've had been privileged to write, a, write for them a few times. And I always read the things they put out with a great deal of enthusiasm and interest. Hmm. I pitched them an idea for next year's, what we call Shabbat Parashat Barish, the beginning of the Torah reading cycle next fall. And uh, what I'm working on now is writing that, which I hope they will publish. <laughs> well, what I've come with already is too long, so they may not be able to use it. In which I try to show that Maimonides, I compare Maimonides to Rashi, the great medieval biblical commentator, whose first comment in the Bible, in effect, says that, uh, it asks, why does the Torah begin with the book of Genesis? Why doesn't it not begin with the first commandment given to the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 12? about creating a Jewish calendar. And Rashi's answer is, in effect, that the Torah begins with Genesis to settle a real estate claim on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, i.e. to justify the fact that the Jewish people own 
the land of Israel given to them by God. And he goes on to say that the Torah begins with the book of Genesis also because it teaches us that in effect, this is not his words, but this is what basically comes out of what he has to say. In, his, in effect, the universe, the cosmos, the entire United Federation of Planets was created so that God could give the Torah to the Jewish people so they could keep the commandments in the land of Israel. Now, Rambam, Maimonides, so first of all, Rashi used, sees the Genesis account as history. And he thinks that history is already built around the Jewish people. Maimonides, A, does not see the Genesis account as history. He asks, what is the Genesis account for? Why is it there? And he says in his uh, the introduction to the guy that perplexed that God wanted us to behave decently. Gave us a lot of commandments, so we would live in personally and socially decent lives, moral lives. But God was not, uh, but Maimonides was not an orthoprax Jew, he was an orthodox Jew. He believed that, that a monkey can fulfill the commandments. A human being has to know who gave them and why. And therefore, the, the Torah wants to teach us true facts about God and about the world. So the Torah opens with Genesis, which Maimonides says almost in these words, is a mythological account of what the Greeks called science, physics and metaphysics. So here you have, and then he goes on to say, to admit in two, two other places, I'm not going to cite chapter and verse in this context, that Moses received the Torah at Sinai, with the philosophical explanation that I, Maimonides, have discovered. But because of the vicissitudes of Jewish history, this philosophical explanation got lost. And it's been my job, so to speak, to try and recreate it. Now, let me add parenthetically that that sounds bizarre. But every Kabbalist will tell you that Moses received the Torah at Sinai the written Torah, the old Torah, and the Kabbalistic Torah, which got lost until the 13th century when the Zohar was, just, and they would say, discovered. So when Maimonides says that there was a philosophical Torah in addition to the written and oral Torahs, that's no weirder than saying that there was a Kabbalistic Torah given at Sinai. But what do we learn from this fact that Maimonides thought that he had to recreate this lost philosophical version of, uh, of, the, of, the, of Judaism, of the Torah, we learn at least two things. First, that the Torah is actually aimed at all human beings. You don't have to be Jewish to understand, to study physics or metaphysics. You have to be a human being, a smart one. So uh, in the words of uh, the rabbis, the Torah was to, aimed at kol ba'eolam, all the inhabitants of the universe. In other words, it's a universalistic vision of Judaism. And secondly, we realize that there is no actual orthodox tradition of philosophical tradition. Maimonides had to recreate it. He recreated it in the Aristotelian terms to which he was familiar. But we are no longer Aristotelians. So we ourselves are obligated to try and recreate the philosophical basis of Judaism with the tools that we have. So those are the things I'm working on right now. I'm trying to show that that is indeed what, what Maimonides held. 
And we'll see if it gets published in the Torah.com in about a year from now. <laughs> I wish you much luck with this wonderful initiative. And I also convey my gratitude for such a wonderful, thoughtful, and ethically inspiring book. Uh, as we bring this interview to a close, um, I have been interviewing Dr. Menachem Kellner, who is the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Jewish Thought at Shalem College in Jerusalem, and also Professor Emeritus of Jewish Thought at the University of Haifa. We have been discussing his eloquent book, We Are Not Alone, A Maimonidean Theology of the Other, published by Academic Studies Press in 2021. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Dr. Dr. Kellner, for being so generous with your time and attention. And thank you so much for your interest. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. It's my pleasure, my honor. Thank you. Thanks a lot.